I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. about 1,000 metabolic disorders, but these genetic rare diseases can go undiagnosed in part because most doctors have so little training in recognizing them. To address this problem, the Genetic Metabolic Center for Education provides both consulting and training in the hopes of improving the diagnosis and care of these patients. We spoke to Mark Corson, Medical Director of the Genetic Metabolic Center for Education, about the challenges metabolic disorders pose why so many people go undiagnosed, and how the center is seeking to fundamentally change the way that knowledge is disseminated in the hopes of increasing patient access to a diagnosis and treatment. Mark, thanks for joining us. Thank you. It's good to be here. We're going to talk about the Genetic Metabolic Center for Education, what it is and what it's trying to accomplish, but I thought we could begin with metabolic disease itself. Metabolic disease is, is not a single disease, but a, a group of genetic rare diseases. Can, can you describe what the term metabolic diseases includes and, and how well understood are these diseases? Okay. So metabolic disorders, also known as genetic metabolic disorders or biochemical genetic disorders, are one group of uh, genetic disorders that um, are associated with some sort of biochemical imbalance. Um, it could be in the blood, it could be in the blood and the body tissues, um, it could be just at the cellular level. Um, as a result, you get an accumulation of certain chemicals and the deficiency of others. Uh, in some cases, it's the accumulation that can cause symptoms, in others, it's the uh, deficient products, and in some cases, it's, it's yet some other chemical imbalance associated with that. Um, these disorders are genetic in nature, so they are inherited, um, and sometimes they can be associated with unusual physical feature, uh, physical features, but, but um, that's uh, usually not the case. Um, the thing about um, metabolic disease is that physicians um, learned about biochemistry in their first year of medical school. And metabolic disease represents the direct clinical application of biochemistry. So if you show me a clinical pathway, a biochemical pathway, um, I can often uh, find a patient who lives with a defect or is trying to live with a defect in that pathway. And uh, the problem is uh, metabolic disorders are not uh, taught very much or very well in whether it's in medical school or whether it's in postgraduate training. And so um, it's believed that the majority of patients with a metabolic disease um, live and die without a proper diagnosis being made. Well, that certainly makes it hard to say how big a, a world of disease this includes, but how many people do you suspect actually have a metabolic disease and how many diseases are, are we talking about? Well, we're talking about probably over a thousand uh, at this point. A thousand different diseases. Um, a thousand different disorders, and that's but we're still identifying. Um, and 
you know, people have tried to estimate uh, based on the number of clinical cases that have come forward where patients are identified based on their symptoms. Um, now, you know, uh, with newborn screening, which in, in which all newborns are screened for a set of disorders, um, that is identifying a, a truer incidence uh, of those disorders. But the, the incidence of um, these disorders keep rising. So at one time it was you know one in five thousand. Now it's 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 almost certainly below, uh, or more common than one in a thousand. Uh, much more because again the majority of patients are not being recognized. So uh, it's uh, collectively they are not uncommon. And what are some of the the better known metabolic diseases? I, I assume this includes lots of some storage disorders. The lysosomal storage disorders are, are certainly one group of disorders. Um, um, perhaps the most well-known is PKU, phenylketonuria. Um, this was is probably the prototype metabolic disease, which was identified, um, you know, 80, 90 years ago, and um, um, and and we learned about how metabolic diseases happen and how they work and don't work um, from that and and we the field cut its teeth on on the symptoms um, cut its teeth on the uh, treatments that uh, are now standard for this group of disorders for many for many of these uh, disorders that require dietary therapy um, newborn screening began for PKU in this country uh, in the early 60s and um, at that time, uh, patients without patients with untreated PKU um, were becoming terribly cognitively impaired. In fact, it's believed that one percent of all institutionalized individuals in the United States in the '60s were institutionalized because of PKU. Uh, that doesn't happen anymore. Um, but I think that the reason PKU is probably more well known is because um, if anybody who who eats NutraSweet or drinks diet soda that has NutraSweet uh, will look in the ingredients and it will say in the ingredients, phenylketonurics, colon, contains phenylalanine. Uh, in other words, patients with PKU, they should be aware that there is phenylalanine, uh, a protein building block in uh, NutraSweet, and they have to take that into account when following their diet. You mentioned newborn screening earlier. Uh, newborn screening today seems fairly inadequate because there's such a, a small number of diseases that can be detected by existing tests. How big a gap is there, and what's the consequence? Well, I, I would actually disagree. I think um, more and more we're able to diagnose these disorders. Um, hundreds of disorders were able to diagnose by newborn screening, which really is the largest and most successful genetic screening program that exists. We're now screening over 40 to 50 disorders in many states in this country. Uh, and those are metabolic disorders. The rationale being, if you identify these disorders very early on when there's just about chemical abnormality present, but not much in the way of um, clinical symptoms, and you intervene at that time with therapy, you can prevent long-term morbidity and mortality. So, um, it's so it's actually a very effective screening program, and the number of disorders um, that are being that are um, um, appropriate for screening are being included now. Uh, every year, another disorder to get at. 
Well, there's a diagnostic problem because patients often show up with symptoms that may be treated by a variety of specialists who don't necessarily consider the possibility of metabolic disease. How do metabolic disorders manifest themselves and why are they so difficult to diagnose? Well, I think they're, um, well, metabolic disorders can affect any organ of the body. In fact, um, you can, uh, many disorders um, show up with multi-system uh, disease uh, because of it's because the problem is the problem in biochemistry, uh, and the biochemistry can affect several different organs. So, any organ system—you name an organ system—and I can tell you um, uh, some disorders that are associated with that organ system and and um, the diseases that are associated with that. Um, and so, specialists are often organ oriented. So, the the gastroenterologist is oriented around the gut and the liver. Uh, the neurologist around the brain. So if you ha- if you see uh, a, a person, uh, a patient, with symptoms um, that may um, involve more than one organ system, um, that may be lost on the on the specialist. Now that's not to say that specialists don't recognize you know and and, and try to put everything together. Absolutely, but the, the biggest problem here is that they were never taught in the first place. Um, and in, in fact, it's, it's interesting. If you look at the training curriculum for newborn medicine specialists, neonatologists, for pediatric gastroenterologists and pediatric neurologists, if you look at it, you can actually see that there's a requirement that they learn about um, certain metabolic disorders that uh, involve their organ of interest, um, their specialty. But in fact, that really doesn't happen in the vast majority of cases because the mentors never learned it well. And so that's what we're trying to do. You can't, you can't possibly recognize um, something that you've never seen or heard about before. This is a, a field of medicine that you say is sorely underserved. In the absence of diagnosis, people with metabolic diseases go without treatment. How long does it typically take patients with a metabolic disease to get a diagnosis? Well, I would say if, if, if you look around the world, I would say the majority never get diagnosed. They live and die without a diagnosis being made. Um, if you look at North America and Europe where, uh, you know, there's newborn screening. And so a large, what newborn screening does is it, it takes the responsibility off the physician of having to make a diagnosis and puts it on the state. It's, it's a public health initiative. So the, pub, so the, so the state um, is identifying these patients. So in that case, it's much, much better. And I think there's, there's um, for all the lack of learning about metabolic disease, there's probably more awareness, aware, uh, more awareness in pediatrics here in North America and Europe about these disorders than elsewhere. Um, in adult medicine, it's, it's, it's much more of a problem um, because there the awareness and uh, is even less. And I would say there's almost a denial that these Patients just can't exist. So these patients are undiagnosed or misdiagnosed as something else, as atypical this or atypical that. Um, that's that's why we're here. In, in the case of patients that do get a diagnosis, how available are treatment options for these diseases? And what are the approaches? How, 
how important is treating them early as well, since many of them... Well, the, the, beauty, the beauty of metabolic disease is that in many cases we understand the chemical imbalance, the too much of something, the too little of something else. And with that in mind, if, that, if, if one or both of those has a bearing on um, causing the symptoms, then, um, then it, it stands to reason if you try to bring down the accumulating substance, substance and replenish the deficient one, you can have a, 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 you get yourself well on your way to preventing uh, or ameliorating the symptoms associated with that disease. So, so um, you know, there's, we're actually trying to figure out just how many of that thousand, approximate thousand, um, are, are, have treatments available. Um, and I would say in the hundreds, um, there, there are treatments available. And the treatments uh, can range from um, dietary treatment, where if you change the diet, then, uh, again, increasing the deficient product and reducing the accumulating substance, then um, that's effective. And in those dis- and, and, and in those disorders, the earlier you get them, before symptoms uh, occur, the more likely you can prevent um, most and sometimes all the symptoms that might occur down the road. Um, as far as we know, because we haven't been treating them for that long, so there's lots of situations where we've initiated treatment and then only to discover that something else pops up pops up later. But dietary therapy um, is one is one type of therapy. In some cases, the enzyme that is not working in a particular disorder requires uh, a certain vitamin to help it function. And there are lots of cases where simply giving large doses of that vitamin, and we're talking about a, a, an over-the-counter vitamin, can save that person's life um, and prevent problems down the road. And we're not going to talk, talking about strange vitamins. We're talking about vitamin B12. We're talking about uh, vitamin B6, folate, um, biotin. Uh, things that are readily available over the counter. There are also drug therapies that help get rid of the accumulating substances um, that which may be toxic to the brain and other organs. Um, the whole area of, as you brought up, the lysosomal storage diseases. There um, enzyme replacement therapies where we're trying to uh, replace um, the uh, the enzyme that's or or uh, replace the enzyme that's not working or provide some suitable alternative um, to, to, to mop up the chemical imbalance. Um, they're, you know, at this point, um, um, they're also experimenting with um, stem cell transplantation, with gene therapies, gene editing, all kinds of, of new opportunities um, to treat these disorders. And, and for many of them, for, I would say, a good majority of the disorders, um, it's actually, um, these disorders are really ideal ones to treat because for many of these disorders, it's a single gene that has gone awry. And so, whereas for disorders like heart disease or, you know, that kind of thing where you could have multiple factors that are involved, including genetic factors that contribute to the development of heart disease with a with a meta, with a metabolic disorder like many other genetic disorders is a single problem, and so if you know so gene therapy theoretically would be an ideal um, approach to correct that one gene and make everything better. 
the Genetic Metabolic Center for Education is trying to improve care for these patients by providing training, expertise, and, and resources to doctors who may not have had training in this area. What exactly is the Genetic Metabolic Center for Education, and how did it come about? Well, you know, I, I, I found, probably about 10 years ago, I found, like other um, like other metabolic geneticists, my colleague, that we would get calls from, you know, centers where there's no metabolic physician, and they would ask for advice about, um, you know, about a specific case and what to do, and they would call us back for the results. And I remember getting a call, uh, numerous calls from one particular med- medical center. And so I thought, well, gee, you know what? They're calling, a number of different physicians are calling. Why don't I just go out to that center once a month and spend a day and, and talk about uh, metabolic disease, not about specific disorders, because, you know, doctors don't need to know about a very specific disorder, but they do need to know what metabolic disorders do I need to be thinking about if a patient presents with coma or patient presents with liver disease or seizures. Um, and so I did that, and it was well-received. Um, and then I started um, uh, getting funding to support a metabolic outreach service, which ran from 2007 to 2011, uh, where I went to uh, five, um, um, gene- uh, five major teaching hospitals in the Northeast the United States, all centers that had a genetic service but did not feel comfortable taking care of metabolic patients. Um, And I went out there for a few years, and it was a great opportunity to try out and see what educational approaches around this area of medicine worked and what didn't work. It was like focus groups all the time. And so after the four years was over, um, I had a lot of um, sort of knowledge gained in doing this. But the problem was, it was, you know, very, it was one-on-one te- or not one-on-one teaching, but uh, one person doing all the work. And so, so the idea wasn't exportable to other areas because, you know, the, the, the problem is there aren't enough of us to do all this kind of work. So, so the um, idea came to really um, modify what the, the former metabolic uh, outreach service into something that had more of a, um, an international or a global uh, impact. And so working with um, a colleague of mine, Jerry Bockley, who heads up uh, genetics at Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh, um, who put us in touch with um, Joe Ogrodnik from the private, uh, private investor and uh, an advisor group, um, also based in Pittsburgh. Um, and so we talked about what can we do to um, increase the, the quality of healthcare for children and adults with metabolic disease? Um, how could we increase, by increasing awareness and knowledge um, to physicians who might be seeing these patients, the healthcare for the patients would, would just go up? And so um, GMCE was... Uh, uh, went through a, a period of development, and then really at the beginning of this year, we opened, we, we formally launched, um, and w- we provide two things. One is we provide a consultation service um, where we can help physicians manage their patients. About half the metabolic clinics 
in North America are run by physicians who have no formal training in this area of medicine. But they have to take care of these patients because there's no one else around. So they were, by circumstance, they are taking care of these patients. Um, so we uh, can help them and their dietitian, who, you know, in cases where, where the patients are managed by dietary therapy, we can help them manage their patients. It's sort of like in, a, in an apprenticeship type. So this is not typical telemedicine where we are taking care of the patient. We are helping the physicians manage the patients. Um, and that over time, they, those physicians will gain um, increased knowledge about these disorders, which helps everybody. Um, and then the education piece. Um, mostly, metabolic patients, when they're undiagnosed, do not present to us the metabolic physician, they present to the subspecialist um, depending on the symptoms that they have. But if those subspecialists don't know very much, then um, those patients can waste years, decades before they're diagnosed, if they're diagnosed at all. And so the education piece is really focused on providing those specialists specialty relevant. So uh, the symptoms that apply to a particular specialty, um, very clinical, very practical. So this is not everything you need to know about metabolic disease. It's just the practical stuff. Um, Case-oriented. So we're not talking about um, hypothetical. We're talking about you know real patients as they present. And symptom-based. Um, we're, we're a symptom-based approach where we don't teach about diseases because patients don't walk in with diseases with a diagnosis on their forehead. They walk in with symptoms. And so rather than talk about a specific disease, we are teaching in terms of symptoms. Um, so again, the patient who presents to the emergency room in, with profound lethargy or, or in the intensive care in coma, what, what metabolic disorders do, you, do they need to think about so that those patients can be diagnosed and are therefore eligible for effective therapy? Uh, and while we teach about everything, we really do prioritize the disorders that are treatable because at the end of the day, uh, even though everybody deserves a diagnosis, you never really want to miss a treatable disorder that could improve a patient's quality of life. What role does awareness play in this? How much of a problem is it getting doctors who are not trained to recognize metabolic disease to consider it as a possibility and know enough to seek additional expertise for diagnosis, I mean, if they need it. Well, you know, um, the most severe metabolic disorders generally present in, in the newborn period or in childhood. And so met the, the field of metabolic disease grew out of pediatrics. Uh, and so most biochemical or metabolic geneticists um, are pediatricians. And so, and so we circulate in the pediatric metabolic uh, pediatric medical community, and um, so pediatricians are fairly aware that we are around. And depending on their training, if they see something they don't understand, especially with some of the more classic presentations like, un, you know, uh, liver disease that's sort of unknown, or a patient who is profoundly has recurrent periods of vomiting or lethargy or coma. Um, I think there's a good sense in the pediatric community that we should be called, uh, and we are we are often involved. But um, in the adult medicine community, the problem is far more. 
problematic. It's far more difficult. Um, I, I've approached a number of um, internal medicine services at prominent adult teaching hospitals saying, I would like to um, um, present grand rounds to your internal medicine faculty. Um, and the topic would be adult presentations of metabolic disease. And I will focus on the treatable. I will make it practical, clinical, and um, more um, not uncommonly, the response is, oh, we don't see those patients here. And that is a huge red flag because they don't know what they don't know. Um, and it's a problem. Um, I've had situations where um, patients, so for example, let me give you an example. Um, uh, the, a <clears throat> woman presented with, um, she was a 65-year-old woman who was doing very well. She had an odd um, dietary history, which suggested that she didn't tolerate protein. But it was that, that you know, only to the experienced uh, clinician, uh, that wouldn't mean anything. Anyway, she was 65. She had retired. She was now driving around her kids and her um, her grandkids, rather, you know, after school, she had a good life. And then she had a number of illnesses, flu-like illnesses, and with the third one that was severe, she ended up falling into coma. Um, that didn't go away, and she would it would come and go. She was in hospital for for months, um, problems with vomiting, and um, and they had identified that her ammonia level was very very high. Now, it turns out that that patient did have a problem in her ability to clear ammonia, to metabolize ammonia, which is a byproduct of protein metabolism. And when ammonia is too high, it um, impacts the brain. It can cause nausea. It can cause uh, delirium, fusion, outright coma, and it'll kill you from brain swelling if you don't treat it. They had identified the high ammonia level early on in the patient's course but they didn't know to call anybody about it, anybody in the metabolic service. The other people that they did call didn't don't know anything about ammonia, and so the patient just sat. And I think it is true that many adult medicine physicians don't know that I exist or that my colleagues exist um, because we just haven't, they haven't had exposure. And so we are... Um, Challenge with a way of increasing awareness, particularly in the adult medicine community, about these disorders. Mark Corson, Medical Director of the Genetic Metabolic Center for Education. Mark, thanks so much for your time today. Oh, you're very welcome. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.